We begin today's morning show with an interview I was privileged to record with one of the world's most successful authors, Rick Reardon, a name that will be very, very familiar, particularly to young readers. Rick Reardon used to be a middle school teacher, but at night he loved telling stories to his two young sons, uh, Haley and Patrick. Haley happened to be diagnosed with dyslexia and ADHD. And Rick Reardon thought to maybe help his son, he would craft some of these stories around a character who himself was dealing with dyslexia and ADHD, a character by the name of Percy Jackson. Haley loved those stories so much that Rick Reardon decided that maybe there was potential there to share them more widely. Ultimately, those stories became the wildly popular series Percy Jackson and the Olympians. Percy Jackson being a 12-year-old boy who quite unexpectedly discovers that he is in fact the son of the Greek god Poseidon. The first book in that series was The Lightning Thief, and from there, there has been no looking back. Rick Reardon has scored one immense triumph after another with uh, subsequent series like The Cain Chronicles, The Heroes of Olympus. The most recent series is The Trials of Apollo, and the fourth in that five-book series, uh, The Tyrant's Tomb, has just been released. I enjoyed a precious few minutes speaking with Rick Reardon over the phone about his incredible career. So, Rick Reardon, we welcome you to the morning show. I have a couple of overarching questions about this amazing career of yours. First of all, if somebody goes on YouTube, they can see videos of you in front of large crowds of screaming young people uh, as though we're watching the Ed Sullivan show and the Beatles are making their first appearance. I mean, <laughs> it is. did you, in your wildest dreams, imagine that your professional life as an author would involve this kind of adulation from young readers? No, no, not at all. I was a middle school teacher for a lot of years, and if I had young people screaming at me, it was usually because I had just assigned them homework. <laughs> well, it's incredible. I wonder, is there, to any significant extent, a dark side to your young fans being so devoted to you and to what you write? I mean, does that, in a sense, place a lot of pressure on you and or maybe box you into a place or or do you find it for the most part entirely joyous and and even liberating well i think it's a mix i i do feel the pressure uh and i am fully aware of all the fans that are waiting for the next book and their expectations and sometimes their conflicting expectations of what they want in the next volume on the other hand i think i have to put that aside to some extent, and just concentrate on writing the best book I can. Uh, that's worked so far, and I have to hope that they'll stick with me uh, from, from book to book that way. And so far, it's worked out well. What is your sense of your readers as they grow up? I mean, you are obviously writing, it seems like you're writing for a, a certain swath of, of, of a certain age. Are they growing up with you and continuing to read your work? Do you have any sense of that? It's been fascinating to watch over the years, and it certainly makes me feel old to have some readers that 
say they grew up with my books and now they have kids of their own and then it's like no you're you're supposed to still be in middle school uh so that that is um both an honor and uh, an unexpected sort of development. I didn't expect to be writing for adults, for kids as young as seven or eight, and everybody in between. But it, it's wonderful that the books have spoken to so many different age groups. Yes, I have readers that have gone from The Lightning Thief, they read it when they were 11, and they're now adults, and they're still reading. And then I have kids that are just discovering the books for the first time. And it's wonderful. Um, I even have, you know, really much older adults, uh, people my age or even older, that just pick up the books because they want a fun read. As I usually tell people, if you enjoy the books, you're the right age for them. <laughs> I like that. Uh, when you turn some of these bedtime stories that you were sharing with uh, your, 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 your two young sons mm-hmm. when you realized that they, they would actually be fertile ground for something actually written down. And, of course, that, of course, eventually became the amazing Percy Jackson series. Uh, how big a transfer did that, did it feel like to go from stories you were telling orally and I would think at least somewhat spontaneously at bedtime to something that was actually written down in a sense cast in stone. Did that feel strange to you at the time? Uh, Not so much at the time because it was such a gradual development. I told my son the Percy Jackson story off the top of my head and I had always been a storyteller. That's just something I grew up with in my family Storytelling is something I always did in my classroom. So it felt very natural to tell my son a story off the top of my head. Writing it down, that was a pretty easy process. I simply wrote it out the way I would any novel, and I I had been writing adult novels by that time for a number of years, so I was somewhat familiar with that skill set. And then I imagine myself reading the novel aloud to my own students. That was sort of my litmus test of whether it was going to work for young readers. It wasn't really until I started thinking about submitting it for publication that it occurred to me it really is written in stone now. That was a little strange. I was nervous about how it would be received, uh, and I, I would never have imagined the, the kind of level of uh, popularity that it succeeded at. Hmm. We're speaking with Rick Reardon, author of the famous Percy Jackson and the Olympian series, also the Kane Chronicles, the Heroes of Olympus, Magnus Chase and the Gods of Ascar, his most recent series Five books in all called The Trials of Apollo, and just out book four in the series called The Tyrant's Tomb. Mr. Reardon, I heard you say in a presentation once that your fascination with Greek mythology and the way in which you find it incredibly fertile ground for, for, for writing books and for creating these series uh, was an experience that you likened to the famous Hydra. (laughs) Explain to our (laughs) listeners the way in which the Hydra, the many-headed Hydra, uh, is kind of an apt metaphor for what Greek mythology is to you as an author. Absolutely. Well, the Hydra, of course, this this many-headed beast in the story of Hercules, you cut off one head and two more sprout up. So it's always multiplying. And I do feel that Greek mythology is the same way. The deeper you go, the more you read, the more you discover. At first, I thought that five books in the Percy Jackson series would be plenty 
to do the entire corpus of uh, Greek and Roman mythology. I was wrong. The deeper you go, the more stories you find, the more it branches out. And here I am writing, what, the 14th book uh, set in Percy Jackson's world, The Trials of Apollo, and I'm still finding new versions of myths, new monsters, new gods. There's so much to explore. The central premise of this five-book series, The Trials of Apollo, is that Apollo has been, in a sense, cast out by his father Zeus and uh, reduced to a powerless 16-year-old boy. Uh, what did you find intriguing about that premise? How did it attract you as an author? Well, the most intriguing thing is that it actually happened in the original myths twice, Apollo was grounded by his dad, and I think that's something a lot of young readers can relate to, being unfairly punished. I also think a lot of us can relate to Apollo's situation. He is trapped in a body he doesn't want. He thinks he should be popular, he should be talented, he should be articulate, and he's not. Uh, he's just tripping over his own feet. He's having a terrible time getting anything done. And I think we all feel that way sometimes. We should be much better than we are. So that was sort of my, my in to the character of Apollo and my uh, feeling of sympathy for him, even though he's an all-powerful god, supposedly. Uh, things get, of course, uh, it feels like increasingly dangerous and violent for young Apollo uh, through the course of these books. And, of course, as we enter book four, there, there's no... No, uh, no let up in sight. That's for sure. Uh, oh yeah. What What do you think about as an author, knowing that young people are reading your books in terms of how much violence, the level of violence, how graphically to dis to uh, to describe it? I mean, I, it it feels like you do a really good job of including just the right amount, but I I'm kind of at a loss to explain just what that amount is. What do you think about as the author? Well, I try to sort of keep the PG rating in mind. Um, I write, yes, I write some violence, but I never try to describe it graphically. Uh, it's enough to imply what's going on, and sometimes the imagination can do a better job relating what's going on than a graphic description can anyway. I again, go back to the idea of telling these stories aloud in my middle school classroom. That's still my litmus test. Mm. If it's um, something that I think would be fine in the classroom, that would be interesting and educational and fun, but not over the line, not something that I'm going to get a whole bunch of parents calling me about and saying, you know, what are you doing? Uh, then I'm, I think I'm probably well within the line. Uh, and so far, that's proved to be the case. Um, the kids like the stories. Yes, they're scary at times, uh, but they're not, they're not too scary. Right. Just scary enough to really uh, snag the reader start to finish. Again, the latest book in the series called The Trials of Apollo is The Tyrant's Tomb. Rick Reardon, thank you so much for all that you've given the world and best wishes with what comes ahead for you in your career. Thank you. So I want to follow up that conversation with something that is much more of a personal story that relates to author Rick Reardon and specifically to the books that he has written for his blockbuster series involving Percy Jackson. 
And one of the matters of Percy Jackson that I don't believe we really got to explore with Mr. Reardon just because of the limitations of time is the fact that Rick Reardon chose to make the protagonist of that book series, Percy Jackson, dyslexic. And he did so for a very personal reason because one of his own sons uh, is dyslexic and as a youngster was severely dyslexic. And uh, so that was a conscious decision on the part of the author and uh, it has made a huge difference in the lives of a whole lot of people a lot of people just coming to an understanding of dyslexia that they might never have had otherwise. And it has had special impact on many young people who themselves are contending with dyslexia. One such young person is my nephew, Kai. And I am speaking for the next few minutes with his mom, my sister, Rondi Berg, who happens to be a medical doctor, a family practitioner, and as a matter of fact, she has been a guest on the morning show on a couple of occasions, although it's been way too long since I've had the pleasure to speak with her. But when she heard that I had recorded an interview with Rick Reardon, she shared the story of what a difference these books made in the life of her son, my nephew, Kai. And uh, so I wanted her to share that story uh, with you as part of this morning show. So, Rondi Berg, my sister, I welcome you back to the morning show. Hi, Greg. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, thank you for it's thinking of this. delightful to be back. Yeah, thank you for uh, thinking of this, and uh, I think this is a, an important story, and uh, there may even be people listening with whom it will resonate in a very direct way, perhaps echoing some experience that either they have had or, or somebody close to them. Uh, so first of all, before we get into the experience that Kai had with these books, uh, I wonder if you would mind taking a a couple of minutes to talk about what dyslexia is and what we know about what is going on in in, in the brain or in the eyes or just where this disorder, in a sense, sort of resides. And uh, and we should say, I'm sure you would want it reiterated that although you are a doctor, you are by no means professionally involved with dyslexia on a regular basis. You're not a specialist in the field, but surely as the mother of someone contending with dyslexia, uh, you know a whole lot about it, uh, more about it than most of us do. What do you want to tell us that you think is helpful to know about dyslexia itself? Yeah, well, um, Percy Jackson uh, in The Lightning Thief, he actually has dyslexia and also ADHD. And those are a couple of conditions that sometimes go hand in hand. Our, our son also has both dyslexia and ADHD and also has something called dysgraphia. And um, these fall into a category of, um, of attributes or characteristics that are referred to as being neurodiverse or neurodiversity. Um, with dyslexia, it's mostly having trouble connecting letters with the sounds that they make and blending that um, together to take those sounds and form them into words. Um, so it's, it's kind of a difficulty with processing, as I understand it. Um, dysgraphia, on the other hand, is trouble taking, taking information from the brain and translating it onto the written page. So it may be oversimplifying things, but I think of dyslexia as having difficulty taking visual information um, 
in the form of written, expressed language, and translating that into information for the brain to process. And dysgraphia is sort of being the reverse of that, like having information in your brain that's maybe hard to get to flow through your pen or pencil onto the page um, into written form. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to be sure to ask you about, and you've already offered a little bit of this clarification just in what you said just now, is um, if dyslexia and this other thing, dysgraphia, it sounds like these are very specifically wed to the matter of language. Uh, yeah. It isn't so much that you see things wrong. And I sp particularly wanted to ask that because, for instance, Kai's a great tennis player. And if there was anything wrong with his eyes, uh, then chances are he, he wouldn't be able to kind of see what goes on on a tennis court, for instance, in a tennis match with perfect clarity. Some, somehow things would be reversed or he'd think the ball was over there or whatever. But, but it sounds like these are conditions that really have nothing to do with that kind of visual uh, process. This really is something that is more specifically wed to language and words and letters. Is that right? Yes, although um, I have also known some kids with dyslexia who have had an improvement in their reading if, for example, they have a red film um, placed over the page. Um, there's something about that, that that changes the way that they see the letters um, that does make it easier for them to read. There are also certain fonts that sometimes um, enhance the reading experience, the way in which the letters are maybe weighted a little bit more heavily uh, towards the bottom of the letters and so on, that, um, uh, that will sometimes make it easier um, to, to visualize those letters and then form them into, into words in the language centers of the brain. If it's not too personal, uh, I would be curious to know when it began to be evident that this was something that, that your son, my nephew, Kai, was dealing with. Uh, I know I remember that he was fairly s slow in beginning to speak, um, but I assume that uh, something like this, what we're talking about, dyslexia and dysgraphia, are not likely to be evident until later uh, in, 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 a, in a youngster's life. Uh, at what point do you happen to recall it started to become evident that this was an issue uh, for him? I believe it was around maybe second to third grade, um, kind of that age when, when you're expecting most kids to be starting to read at least simple sentences with um, uh, rather effortlessly, and, and for him, he was nowhere near being able to do that um, at that point, and, and we did take him to have a, a more thorough evaluation through um, the Learning Center at Gunderson Clinic in La Crosse, and um, he went through a whole battery of tests over several hours, and, and it was through that that we learned that dyslexia and dysgraphia were, were just part of his, his brain's makeup. Were you there for that testing? And, uh, I mean, like in the room when he was being tested? And if so, what do you remember about that? Yeah. 
We actually were not. Uh, we went along, you know, of course brought him there, um, but I suspect that they specifically did not want us um, to be sitting there, you know, right in the same room as, as this evaluation was going on. And, and Kai is a very sociable boy who's, you know, comfortable with strangers rather quickly. So, you know, it's not something that I think we would have pressed, um, pressed the issue on. Um, so it's my recollection that we, you know, kind of left him and went and got coffee and maybe ran some errands and then came back and sat down and, and kind of talked through the whole picture um, of what they were feeling that they were uncovering about uh, Kai and his, his particular learning style. Um, and they were very, very good about pointing out all the various strengths that he had and, you know, the things that really make him a, a wonderful, um, curious learner. Uh, they also pointed out that he was quite bright, which I think is, often the case for kids with dyslexia. Um, they're often kind of misunderstood or underappreciated um, in ways that make them seem like uh, like they're quote-unquote slow learners um, when in fact they just have a little different, um, different way of learning. Right. Is it your understanding that there is kind of a range when it comes to dyslexia? I mean, can somebody be more sort of severely or seriously dyslexic versus somebody else where it is maybe a, a milder situation or one that kind of comes and goes? Again, I, I want to reiterate that you're not an expert on dyslexia, but I'm curious if you have any understanding of that. Yes, and it is my understanding that there is a range, and I think that's true for for most things about how we describe people, you know, that there will be a spectrum um, from mild to more severe uh, presentations, and, um, and that's also true for dyslexia. Right. One of, my, one of the only people in my own life that I had direct awareness of that uh, he or she had uh, dyslexia was somebody who quite a long time ago worked here at the radio station. I'm going to be very discreet here with the information, so there's no chance of the identification of this person being kind of inadvertently revealed. But uh, one of the things that would be a, a clue to me that this person's dyslexia was firing up was when this person would be responsible for filling out certain forms and sometimes this person would do it with perfect accuracy. And then there would be other times, uh, maybe once a month, where this was setting in and suddenly the numerals uh, were flipped or under uh, upside down or that, that kind of thing. And it seemed like it correlated when, uh, when they were tired. And it was just kind of interesting to me because I think most of us with no direct acquaintance with this uh, situation or condition uh, just kind of assume that it is sort of something that's fairly rigidly in place and every waking hour of every waking day it's sort of the same kind of issue for a person and and at least with this colleague of mine uh, it seemed like something that was in a sense a bit more intermittent or or unpredictable or maybe their capacity to in a sense deal with it would would be would would vary according to 
how they were feeling. Does that sure. sound familiar with other people that uh, have dealt with dyslexia? I think that's uh, absolutely true. And I think that I shared with you that uh, my husband and I went through a dyslexia simulation, um, also through Gunderson. And one of the things that absolutely struck me so, so strongly was what an exhausting experience it was. Um, I would say within 15, 20 minutes of going through this simulation, I had tears dripping off of the bottom of my chin. Um, And it was mostly from that very deep, um, deep recognition. It's like this light bulb went on in my head of, as a mom, for the first time, being able to um, have a sense of what Kaya was going through every hour of every day and and the way in which it was a really, you know, kind of draining, um, draining experience, like the things that they have to do to maybe compensate, um, that those are things that take energy. Right. And, um, I, think, I think kids with dyslexia, they're often labeled as not trying hard enough or just not focusing or if they would work harder, they would, you know, be able to accomplish this or that learning task um, more efficiently. And it really isn't about that at all. These are kids who are resilient, who are resourceful, who are bright, and who are working hard. Um, And it was the first time that I really had that deep realization or recognition of just how hard Kai was working day after day in school. Wow. Can you tell us more about the form that that simulation took? I mean, what mm-hmm. were you and Matt, your husband, in a sense, looking at? Or, or how, how was this presented to you? How, how was the experience of someone with dyslexia uh, represented in this simulation? Right. So there were a number of different stations that we rotated through, and there was a different type of activity at each one. And, and each of those activities, you know, was intended to kind of reinforce a different aspect of, um, of what it's like to have dyslexia. And the first station that I went through, it was one of those where, I don't know if you've ever um, had the chance to experience this kind of apparatus where you are looking into a mirror and your hands are shielded from your view and you have to look into the mirror and that's where you're seeing your hands. Um, so you can't look at your hands directly, but you're actually looking into the mirror to see what your hands are doing. And so you're seeing you the reflection of your hands. You're seeing a reflection of your hands, yes. And, and then you're given a task that you're supposed to do. Um, in this case, I think there was maybe like a spiral shape um, and you had to trace that, but by looking in the mirror to do it. Um, and it's really difficult. You know, your, your line wants to go one way, and when it really needs to go the other, and so it ends up being all jiggly and kind of crooked and, and this and that. It really takes a lot of careful concentration to, to do it, and even so, it doesn't look the best. But what really brought the experience home to me was that as I was doing it, there was someone standing behind me saying, 
Rondi, take your time. Your, your line is looking all crooked. Now, if you would just slow down, slow down. Now, try a little harder. Um, when you're done, we want this to look as good as possible because we're going to hang these all up on the wall so that on parents' night, the parents can come and look at your work. So we want it to look good. So try harder so that this looks good. Um, we want your parents to be proud of you. And it was that that kind of feeling of, um, I am trying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am doing the best that I can. And I'm feeling kind of ashamed of, of what my hand is producing because it's not the, you know, beautiful lines that I was accustomed to making. And it was that kind of sense of shame um, that I think a lot of these kids end up experiencing um, unnecessarily. Uh, wow. That really, really hit a tender spot in, in this mother's heart. Right. It's probably something that uh, not only the parents of somebody dealing with this should experience, but anybody who works with uh, a youngster dealing with this should experience this same simulation and uh, have a better sense of, of what some young people are, are contending with. And, and as you said, how hard they are working to yeah. surmount these, 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 these kind of uh, issues and difficulties. Right. Uh, a last question about dyslexia. Uh, do we know anything, as far as you know, about what causes this? Or, in a sense, what is going on inside the brain of someone with dyslexia that, that leads to this condition? Or is that something of, of, of a mystery? I don't know the answer to that. I'm sure that that's something that has been studied, and, and I don't know what kind of conclusions have been, have been drawn. Um, so I don't really know what causes it. I did, in preparation for this interview, I did look at some information on dyslexia just to make sure that, you know, some of the things that I were saying about it, I wanted to try and be as accurate as I could. And I thought it was kind of interesting um, if I typed in the word dyslexia, you know, for example, into a search field, the sorts of things that came up were things like um, five warning signs that your child might have dyslexia. Um, or um, uh, problems that people with dyslexia suffer from. And, and this whole idea about it being, you know, a really um, overwhelmingly negative, difficult, you know, thing that a person is saddled with uh, lifelong uh, really struck me. Mm. And, um, like it's a cross to bear. I think it's a cross to bear. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, of course, in, in some ways, that is what it is, but that is certainly not the whole picture here. And I think what you're saying is it is a mistake to think about it only in those kind of terms. Exactly. For those of you just joining us, uh, my guest for this portion of the morning show is my sister, Rondi Berg, Dr. Rondi Berg, a a medical doctor, a family practitioner. She lives in Decorah, Iowa. Uh, 
her, her practice uh, is actually right across the border in Harmony, Minnesota. And we're talking right now about dyslexia, not because she herself is, professionally speaking, an expert on dyslexia, but because dyslexia has been a very direct part of her life because she has a son, my nephew Kai, who has dealt with both dyslexia and dysgraphia. And um, one of the things that ultimately made a huge difference in the the life of Kai as a youngster uh, was some of the books of Rick Reardon with this character called Percy Jackson. Ahead of us talking about the difference this made, give us uh, a picture of, of what reading was like for Kai before he encountered the books of Percy Jackson for the first time. What, what kind of struggle are we talking about? Yeah, well, I think at the time that uh, we first started reading those books, he basically was doing little to no independent reading at all. Um, uh, I, I want to say that he was in um, third to fourth grade when we first became acquainted with the Percy Jackson books. And, um, yeah, he would do the little bit that was required, you know, in school, but he was not an independent reader at home. And I, I might also mention that my husband, Matt, also um, has dyslexia. And he will tell you that he graduated from high school without ever independently reading a single book. Without ever reading a book for fun or on his exactly. own. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. The only reading that he did was what was uh, required for school. Um, and um, reading has always been a, a huge part of my own life, as I know it has been for you as well. And one of the things that we grew up with um, was having our mom read aloud to us. And I remember so many long car rides when our mom would um, read a book aloud. And so for me, a, a big part of my my life with my children and also with my husband has been this practice of reading aloud. Can I just, inter- sorry, just want to interrupt oh. for a moment. I, I want to understand in this early going as far, not that you can climb inside Kai's head, but uh, when he would have to, for instance, read a book because it was a, an assignment from school. Um, so for him, do you have a sense of the way in which this was difficult? I mean, I think so often we hear kind of the simplistic description that when you have dyslexia, you're flipping letters all the time. And so the letters are sort of jumbled up or they seem like they're in the wrong order and and they don't form the words that that should be on the page. And I think that is a gross oversimplification of what someone with dyslexia is actually experiencing when they attempt to read. Can you clarify that? Well, I actually am not sure if I can really, you know, tell you what the reading experience uh, was like for Kai. I have a better understanding for Matt, and Mm. maybe their experiences are similar. When I read, I see a whole phrase of words all at once, Um, whereas for Matt, he actually uses a card, like an index card, and will put that under the line of text that he's reading and he marches through it, you know, letter by letter, 
to form one single word in his mind at a time. Um, whereas for me, when I glance at the line, I see five or six words all at once and kind of see them as a as a complete idea or a complete phrase. And, um, and so that, you know, letter by letter kind of laborious uh, way of reading is is how Matt does it, and I, I suspect that it was similar for Kai. Right. So uh, Kai is a youngster. I mean, the last thing in the world he would ever do for fun would be to just pick up a book and read it, and, and little wonder if the experience of reading would be uh, so difficult. So tell us how this character of Percy, Gra- uh, Percy Jackson entered your lives. Yeah, well, I'm not exactly sure how we heard about these books, but I happened to pick it up as being simply the next book that um, Kai and I were going to be reading together, not really having any idea um, what the storyline was going to be like. And it was really the first page of the first book that um, I think captured Kai's heart and mind almost immediately. And, and if time allows, I, I wondered if I could just share with you that opening passage of the book. I think that's great. And, and tell us also, if you would, the title of the book. It's called The Lightning Thief. Right. Okay. Yeah. Look, I didn't want to be a half-blood. If you're reading this because you think you might be one, my advice is close this book right now. Believe whatever lie your mom or dad told you about your birth and try to lead a normal life. Being a half-blood is dangerous. It's scary. Most of the time it gets you killed in painful, nasty ways. If you're a normal kid reading this because you think it's fiction, great. Read on. I envy you for being able to believe that none of this ever happened. But if you recognize yourself in these pages, if you feel something stirring inside stop reading immediately. You might be one of us. And once you know that, it's only a matter of time before they sense it too, and they'll come for you. Don't say I didn't warn you. My name is Percy Jackson. And that's how the book opens. And I think that line about if you recognize yourself in these pages, if you feel something stirring inside, you might be one of us. Um... I think for Kai, you know, he immediately wondered, what is that special something that uh, Percy is alluding to? And yes, it's the fact that he's a half-blood, but we very quickly learned that he also has dyslexia and ADHD. And, and for Kai, that feeling of, oh my word, this exciting um, character shares something in common with me, uh, I think was something that just immediately uh, was very riveting for him to feel like he wasn't alone um, in having this quality. Uh, it, yeah, it was, it was almost like the book sent out grappling hooks <laughs> that kind of <laughs> latched onto his, his heart and mind and, and really just pulled him in so deeply from that very first page on. Wow. So at this point in time, uh, 
Kai had no classmates or no friends that were also dyslexic. I mean, he was the only person he knew of that that was dealing with this. Exactly. Yep. And I think uh, it was also a socially isolating experience uh, for him. One of the things that's kind of a painful memory for me from from Kai's early grade school years is that if you didn't have your work done, um, you didn't get to go out for what's called reward reset, um, reward recess uh, on Friday of each week. And in that entire year of school, I think he got to go out for reward recess one time. Um, typically, all the rest of the class was out there on the playground, and Kai was sitting alone back in the classroom, um, excluded, you know, left back, um, because he, he hadn't been able to complete his work as quickly um, and as thoroughly and perfectly as his classmates. Uh, and And in some ways, that was, yeah, just a very... You know, again, kind of shaming sort of experience for him, and and the primary driver of that, I really believe, was was the dyslexia. That sure. He so he is hearing this book, and this book is being read to him. Is that right? At this point. Yeah. Yep. And there is this character named Percy Jackson who is dyslexic. So, take us from there. So, what was this journey like for you and Kai? Uh, and these books by Rick Reardon. Yeah, well, I have to say that I I ended up reading to him until I was nearly hoarse, um, day after day from that point on. And I don't know if you've actually read any of these books yourself, but each book is you know around 350 to 400 pages long. And the first set of books um, has seven volumes in it. And then there's another series that follows it, which has a similar number of books. And then there's yet another series that um, involves kind of Egyptian mythology. And then there's another series that involves Norse mythology. And Kai and I read those together um, over a period of time. I imagine it was probably, oh, maybe a year or two. But... um, but there were weeks when we easily read seven to 800 pages um, out loud. At first, with me reading the majority of it, but eventually Kai reading some of it out loud, too. Um, and one of the best things for kids to do who have dyslexia is just to simply read and read and read and read, just to kind of immerse themselves in language and... Um, and so we spent hours um, of me reading aloud to Kai, and then eventually with Kai kind of shouldering more of that reading himself. Mm. So in what way do you feel like this, in a sense, was tr- a transformative experience for Kai beyond just the, the matter of Percy Jackson and someone else has dyslexia, even beyond that, the way in which this changed his attitude about reading? Hmm. Well, I think it was 
I think it really was specifically this book and this character um, that interested Kai so deeply that that it turned him from an occasional passive consumer of literature into a truly voracious uh, reader. And, and it was the sheer repetition and volume of practicing reading that really turned a corner for him. Hmm. And to this day, uh, Kai loves to read? Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> and um, Matt also loves to read, and they enjoy the same types of books, which has really been fun to see. As much as I loved reading these books aloud to Kai, this is not necessarily the type of literature that would have been my first choice, just just in terms of, you know, I'm not someone who's necessarily drawn to stories about people with superpowers or, uh, you know, battling monsters or this and that, which are some of the themes that arise in these books. Um, I really read these books because I just love the joy and delight on Kai's face when I would read to him, and, and that was where my enjoyment came from. But he and Matt shared the same love for for this type of literature and Kai is always checking out books from the school library or the public library and bringing them home to Matt and the two of them you know when they get home they disappear each to their own corner of the couch and and get their books out and just get lost in that world for Mm. for a couple hours every night fantastic Dr. Rondi Berg, my sister and the mother of Kai, an amazing young man, uh, and what a great story. Thank you for joining me on the morning show and for sharing this story so openly and articulately. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Greg.